Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. Glenn Block is here. We're going to be talking to him, serverless guy that he is. And how are you, Mr. Campbell? I'm great. Up on the coast, you know, summertime. Got the little portable recording rig. has been a couple of pictures floating around of it. But the ocean is angry today, my friend. It might show up in the recording. I don't know, but I can hear the crashing waves. You mean you're like actually outside? You will be able to hear the ocean? I'm indoors, but remember our place is like right on the water. Right. So the waves are actually going by and hitting the rocks past where I am. So if you hear like party, like people drinking and all and all that stuff and hooping and hollering, it's probably the otters. Yeah. Right? I don't think the otters would be out right now. The ocean is angry. This is kind of a good time to hang out in your den. Well, here the temperature is angry. Remember how we didn't have summer or spring and, and then it's finally summer? Yeah. 98 yes. degrees today. Directly to fry. Have some heat. <laughs> All right, enough talk about the weather. I got something really cool for Better Know a Framework. All right. Let's roll the music. All right, dude, what do you got? It's a relatively new podcast, mm. and it's at Libsyn, and it's called Behind the Tech with Kevin Scott, ah, yes. Microsoft's chief technology officer. And this guy's actually a LinkedIn guy. Yep. Yep. And so joined in. So his he did a trailer and then in May, and then his first episode is out June 20th, and it's Anders Heilsberg. Ah, good start. Great start. And it's a really good interview. Ah, great. I do have conversations going on with his people to come on our show. So maybe we'll uh, we'll talk to Kevin ourselves. That'd be awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Good one. That's what I got. Go listen to it. Cool. Who's talking to us, Mr. Campbell? Grabbed a comment off of show 1443, which we did with Yoche Kirati. We were talking about Azure Functions. I bet we're going to talk a little serverless today. We're hanging around with the Blockster. Probably. And, of course, great conversation, right? That, that's from May of 2017. And, you know, lots of folks still getting their head around serverless. It's, there's lots to know. It's funny how fast this stuff is moving. Mm -hmm. And this comment comes from Nicola Teppa, who says, Many thanks for the great show with regards to the whole serverless movement. There's one thing I've been missing in the discussion. As great as cloud serverless is, there's still a lot of big companies where putting your infrastructure or even data in the cloud is out of the question. Setting up and running your infrastructure is usually complicated, time-consuming, and expensive. Having some on-prem serverless framework where you could deploy in minutes and provide new features to business within days would be a godsend. I would argue that it would provide an even greater value to developers in such companies than it does in the cloud, as there's a big, untapped, as far as I know, market in it. And there are a couple of sort of open source serverless frameworks out there. But I also think the energy around we just can't be in the cloud is dissipating faster than that. Yeah, I mean, it's economies of scale and you know, realities of that are setting in. You know, over on the Run As Radio side, we're having these conversations these days where more and more companies are hitting that sort of five-year mark on their hardware where it comes out of warranty and stuff's going to start breaking. Mm. And you're getting ready for a six or seven digit investment. Yeah. And thinking, you know, I can buy a lot of cloud with that. Mm. So it, it, I do think there's these longer cycles, especially in IT, for waiting for contracts to expire with data centers and for hardware to expire from warranty, where we're starting to see more energy move into the cloud in general. So either way, uh, Nicola, thank you so much for your comment. A copy of Music to Code Buy is on its way to you. And if you'd like a copy of Music to Code Buy, write a comment on the website at donnetrocks.com or via any of our social media, because we publish every show to Facebook and Google+. And if you comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you some Music to Code Buy. 
Absolutely. And follow us on Twitter. I'm at Carl Franklin. He's at Rich Campbell. Send us a tweet. We put him through daily calisthenics. Nice. Keep him in shape. That's a jumping jack for you, Mr. Tweet. (laughs) We would like to bring Mr. Glenn Block back to the show. He's been on many, many times. Of course, Glenn runs product for Extend by Auth0, an embedded SaaS customization platform. Glenn's been developing software for almost 30 years. He's been an active supporter of the developer community and an organizer of community events such as .NET Fringe. Glenn is an international speaker and an O'Reilly author. He's an advocate for STEM and a mentor for people new to tech and product development. And when not at work, Glenn lives with his wife, daughter, and two guinea pigs in Seattle, where caffeine and rain are aplenty. (laughs) You can also find him tweeting into the night as at GBlock. Welcome back, Glenn. Hey, guys. Good to be back. Good to have you. Yeah, absolutely. Been a long time since the days of Web API were just poking poking oh. around the corner. Meph. And meph. My original meph believer. Yeah, the first time I think you guys had me was for Prism. Mm. That's right. So that was a long time. I think I was just looking. I think this is going to be my 15th episode, which is kind of crazy. That's fair. That is crazy. That is a lot. At some point here, you get a free submarine sandwich. <laughs> yeah. So it's over about 10 years. I think my first one was 2000. Maybe it was 2007. Actually, I think my first one was 2007 when I was working on Prism. And it was, I think it was Brian Noyes and I did one. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Brian's been involved with Prism from the very beginning because he's still working with it. Yeah, now that it's open source too. You know, it's it's really been interesting. I know this is not what we're talking about today, but it has been interesting to see how it's really taken on a life of its own. How, you know, Grigori, before he left, who's now heading up at MongoDB, he open sourced all that stuff when he was yeah. uh, leading PMP. And then now Brian Noyes and, and Brian Lagunas, you know, they've they've taken Prism and really are keeping keeping it going, poured it to Xamarin. And I think it's great. I mean, it's, it's awesome to see the community driving that and see, seeing where that's gone. I had no idea when we first, you know, shipped it, where it would go, but it's pretty exciting. I want to do one other history piece with you, which I, I think we were missing out to talk about, which was Script CS, because I feel like oh, you yeah. were at the edge of this idea of C-sharp beyond Microsoft. Yeah. Before Microsoft was talking about being open source around it or anything like that, here was Script CS, and you were this really strong advocate for it. Yeah, and Script CS is still going. I, I've, I've kind of passed the reins a bit to Philip, who you know was one of the original coordinators and the maintainers of the project. But yeah, it was, I came, you know, I, I worked on doing a lot of node development for a number of years with, with Azure and kind of the early story of Azure and Node. And I just fell in love with the simplicity of the Node development experience, just using Node and NPM. Mm -hmm. And at that time, Roslyn was taking off, which was Microsoft's answer for, it was basically a new compiler. Uh, Well, now it's, it's there that compile code on the fly. And it was like compiler as a service, kind of the way they described it. But it also had within it a very lightweight scripting model it enabled the ability to just have a code file and, and to execute that. You know, I looked at that initially, it was me, I looked at that and said, wow, you know, if I could take this and build on top of it and add support for like NuGet packages and multi-file and things like that, whoa, I could actually get to something that is node-like. Right. And uh, yeah, it kind of took off. I mean, it never yeah. went, you know, it never went gold, so to speak, in terms of adoption. But impact-wise, I think it had a lot of impact 
A lot of people were talking about it, and there were a lot of people at Microsoft actually that looked at it and said, wow, this is cool. And, and if you look at the direction of where things have gone with you know, .NET Core and Core CLR and all of that, you know, it's really been moving away from this kind of heavyweight project-oriented system to a lighter, lighter weight type of system. I think the, the right. script stuff we were doing seemed a little too edgy. <laughs> it was kind of the feedback that I got. They loved it, but it was too edgy for Microsoft to kind of go down that path. I always looked at it as one of those things that was critical acclaim and part of the story that moved into open source VS Code, lightweight, mm -hmm. across the board. It's just that it was ahead, almost ahead of its time. I agree. It was ahead of its time. And, you know, I think it I definitely agree. helped and, and people responded well to it. It had a rich community. And now they've, it's been ported to, I mean, Philip has been working on porting it. So it works with .NET Core and the newer Roslyn and all, and all that kind of stuff. So it was definitely the most exciting kind of open source project outside of work that I was involved with. Cool. And at the time when it came along, I wanted, you know, I, my friend that I used to work with, Nick Bloomhart, you know, wrote Autofact, which was like this amazing sure. thing. And I used to sit there and be like, I want to have a project like that, you know, that has that kind of traction, mm. which ScriptCS wasn't it in terms of, you know, millions of downloads. But it's certainly when I hit on it and, and it felt like, okay, here's something that's really going to solve a problem that people are going to get excited about. So, yeah. Glenn, have you done anything with Blazor? I haven't. I've, I've been paying attention. I, I always pay attention to what's going on. That's, that's using WebAssembly, right? That's like the uh, right. allowing you to basically yeah. like leverage WebAssembly to write .NET code. I think it's a really cool idea, right. but I haven't really done much with it. I've, I've only had people tell me about it. So yeah, but I haven't right. done anything with it. So what's new in the serverless world? Yeah. So when we last spoke, I was talking to you a lot about this technology we developed at Auth0 called WebTask. And at yeah. that time, we were trying to figure out like where we could take that as a business. Well, now flash forward, I think, almost 18 months later from the time that we last met. And we've gone in a very interesting direction with it. We've created this new product called Extend. And the problem that we're trying to solve with Extend is to make SaaS products easier to customize by the users. So this really becomes interesting for B2B SaaS products. So think of Salesforce. So Salesforce is, you know, the de facto CRM solution that's out there. And there's a rich ecosystem around it because Salesforce was designed so that it's really easy to customize it and extend it. And what's interesting about mm. Salesforce is you can do that right within Salesforce itself. Like they have this right. kind of embedded IDE type experience. Yeah. But you've got to be a pretty strong developer and they have Apex, which is the you know, development language for Salesforce. And you know people love it, people hate it. But the point is that they've provided a way to take Salesforce much further as a product. And you don't have to handle any hosting or anything like that. You just basically you know, set up your environment. Well, actually, that's not completely true because if you go into the marketplace, you do have to set up some servers that will host your app. But they do provide this embedded authoring experience. So the problem that we've been trying to solve is say that, so if I describe that Salesforce experience, so one, there was the Apex side of like, I have to learn this new language and, you know, not a lot of people know it. And, and it's a pretty sophisticated language, powerful, but there's a hurdle there. B, I have to end up deploying and managing my own infrastructure. Like if I deploy something to the marketplace, that means that I have to stand up servers and manage them. And then the marketplace hooks into that. 
So what we've been doing is we've been leveraging our serverless platform and we've provided an embedded experience that you can put inside of a SaaS product that allows you to do that kind of customization that Salesforce is enabling, only you can do it in JavaScript. It's all JavaScript based. So it's utilizing right. our web task technology under the hood. But the best part about it is there's no hosting. Hmm. So for the customer or for the partner who's authoring the extension, you just write the extension. We run it for you. There's no servers. You don't even know that. The, I mean, there are servers, obviously, because we manage it. But there's no servers that you have to know about. Right. Yeah. So it gives you that ability to really rapidly iterate. And so the first example of this actually was Auth0. So Auth0 has within it an experience for developing what are called rules. And I don't know how familiar you guys are with Auth0, but with rules, any customer or one of our sales engineers can go in and can write some custom logic that will execute at the time when a user logs in. And that logic, where that runs, that runs actually on our platform. So the user does not have to sign up for any separate accounts, stand up any servers. They just write the code right inside mm. the product and it executes for them. So we had, we had a lot of customers who were telling us that, wow, like we love this experience that Auth0 has. We have our own SaaS product. We'd like to be able to enable the same thing. And so one of the customers was Schneider Electric, which is now Aviva. They're a very large customer, and they really loved the experience that we had in Auth0, and were like, hey, if we could have something like this, we would put this in our product. And so we built out this product called Extend, and it gives you like an embedded lightweight editor that you can put inside of your product, white-labeled, and we give you our runtime, and you can have a JavaScript authoring experience. And I kind of compare it often to like Excel. Like Excel has macros, right? So macros right. allow me to just go right into Excel, write whatever I want, and that just executes. And if I'm you know, using Office Online, I don't have to think about where those servers are located, et cetera. It's the same idea. Mm -hmm. So it's a very new mm -hmm. idea. And we're kind of the first company that has approached this problem in this way, which has all the pluses and minuses associated with it. What I find really interesting about it is, you know, serverless for us is more of an implementation detail, but it is absolutely solving a real problem. It is just sure. removing a whole bunch of pain that, you know, customers or partners face when trying to extend or customize a platform by taking care of all that heavy lifting for you. And also, it's the fact that it's an embedded experience just means it just removes hurdles. There's you know, no, like I have to go sign up for some separate account. No environment to set up. Exactly. Well, what if you're used to like the full stack? You know, you have everything from SQL Server and Entity Framework and Web API and managers and all this stuff. Sure. You know, there, there are alternatives out there, but I mean, just because you have a, some node stuff going on, where do you advise people there? That's a good question. So first off, I mean, we have support for all node modules. So you can write pretty sophisticated things. Like you could basically have a customization that is calling out to MongoDB. We don't offer right. the deploying of MongoDB or SQL Server. And as long as there's a node module that you can basically leverage for invoking that, or if it's exposed through an HTTP API, you can absolutely call those things. A lot of the things that Extend tends to get used for are very small, like business logic and rules. Sure. Right. Though we do have some companies that are looking at us for full-on marketplace kind of things. 
where, you know, imagine like that Salesforce example that I described, but the thing that powers that marketplace is actually extend. So you can build those extensions right there. But anyway, going back mm. to your question, you know, we are JavaScript to the core. We, we do have some support for C Sharp, but it's pretty limited. But in this microservices kind of world and where everything is a service, it just doesn't really, hasn't really become a blocker because as long as you can make API calls, right. you're not blocked. Nice. Does that make sense? Yeah, sure. So it just means that in the node world, there are different tools that you use and different platforms that you use other than the things that you're used to. And uh, you sort of have to embrace those. And that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. Well, that you're used to if you're, if you're not a Node or JavaScript developer. That, the other side I would say to that, though, is that JavaScript is actually very approachable. Like if we go back to that Excel macros example, mm-hmm. you know, the thing about JavaScript is that although it's not perfect, there's a pretty low barrier to getting some basic things done with JavaScript. And that means that the definition of who is a developer who authors those types of extensions becomes really, really wide in terms of who that market is. The other thing I should point out is that everything runs completely in isolation. Under the hood, we're we're all containerized. So it's all using like Docker containers. So, you know, you get a dedicated environment for you and you can do whatever you want, but because it's running in complete isolation of the main app, like even if you do something, you know, that's, that's not the, the best way to implement something, you're not going to be bringing down the service because sure. it runs in complete isolation. Yeah. And Glenn, give us one moment here for this very important message. Today's episode of .NET Rocks is sponsored by Datadog, a monitoring platform for cloud-scale infrastructure and applications. Datadog provides dashboarding, alerting, application performance monitoring, and log management in one tightly integrated platform so you can get end-to-end visibility quickly. And it integrates with more than 200 technologies, including AWS, Postgres, MySQL, and Docker. Visualize key metrics, set alerts to identify anomalies, and collaborate with your team to troubleshoot and fix issues fast. Try it yourself by starting a free 14-day trial today. Listeners of this podcast will also receive a free Datadog t-shirt. Go to dd.netrocks.com. And we're back. Richard Campbell, Carl Franklin, it's .NET Rocks. We're talking to our friend Glenn Block about Auth0 and this sort of serverless mindset. It occurred to me, the way you were describing this, is like in the old days, and me the old days being last year, <laughs> these would be features that your customers were demanding from you. you you'd have a big list, try to mm. prioritize them, and some people have to wait, and then you have to build them in sort of a white label sort of way so that they work for multiple cases. Like, just let them code it themselves the way they want it. Yes, yes. It's a big part of our value proposition. As a matter of fact, you know, I'm a product manager by trade for the last 10 years, and, you know, I look often, every product manager has a backlog. And so one of the selling points that we talk about is, you know, with Extend, you basically are offloading that backlog because like you said, you only have so much resource. You can't do it all. You look at various things like what's going to be the biggest impact, what's the lowest hanging fruit, et cetera. But there's a lot of opportunities Mm. that you end up then missing because you just can't do it all. And then the second side is you don't want to do it all right? Because you don't want to turn your product into a Frankenstein product that's so difficult to deal with. Yeah, you hit it there. What ends up happening is you end up with a shopping list of features 
that most customers want one of or two of, and you've got exactly. 50, and they've got to cull through it to figure out what the heck they want to use. And it's usually just logic. So it's a, it's a webhook extension, and they just put in the logic, and you're done. That's the thing. And the, and the point is, like in the webhooks model, when we talk a lot about webhooks, often that it turns out to be a lot more expensive than you think because it's like, okay, yeah, I just have this little logic to run, but how much am I paying to get to the place where that little logic sure. can run, right? I have to like yeah. stand up all these servers, deal with ops, deal with budgets, all this other things. And, and the serverless movement helps with that, but it doesn't, it still means there's a separate account there. It still means there's a separate budget there. And, th- and sure. that's the kind of thing that we're trying to address. Well, another fascinating thing that we've seen is, so, you know, this, it really addresses multiple audiences. So the most, I would say, eloquent or unique part of this kind of pattern, and I, I've done a bunch of talks. I spoke at Serverless NYC on this pattern we've been calling serverless extensibility, because, of course, our product's not the only way to do this. You have products like sure. Twilio has offered a similar experience with Twilio functions. Mm-hmm. The difference mm-hmm. with us is we're a generic product that helps to deliver that versus you kind of building out your own experience. But we've seen that one, it enables what we'll call field testing of features. So let's say a request comes in for a feature and you think there might be something there. Right. Well, what is it going to cost you to get something quickly to market to just test out and validate whether the demand really is there and whether you've nailed it. So what we've seen is companies that often, one of our companies, Factory 4, which is a manufacturing SaaS company, they're using us first for themselves just to iterate quickly. Like it's just much lighter weight and easier for them to deliver things to the market. Ultimately, those things may become more productized once the validation is there. Sure. But you've saved a ton because you've not invested all that upfront cost. Well, you're not guessing what the customer wants. You're watching customers build what they want. And when you see a commonality across a bunch of them, it's like, well, maybe we should roll this into a feature of some kind. Yes, there's that aspect or there's the aspect of we think there's something that the market is demanding. So we'll just use Extend within our product to have our sales engineering, for example, build something lightweight and get it out to the market. And to give you an example of where that happened within Alt Zero and was wildly successful, our multi-factor authentication, which, you know, now MFA is everywhere. Sure. But at the time when we first got MFA into our product, it was just popping up and it was becoming like a thing. And we were starting to get customers to ask for it. So the customers didn't implement it themselves. Our field implemented it, but they were able to implement it really quickly. It never hit the product backlog initially. Because they were able to roll out something lightweight and get customers using it and get the validation. And of course, they gave the disclaimers. This is something new. We're throwing this together for you. But they were able to do that in a really cost-effective way. And the adoption Mm. became like it was amazing. Like customers just loved it. And that rolled eventually into a proper kind of implementation within the product itself. Did you guys maintain the code base? Yes, exactly. So this is the interesting line we're at with this new world of cloud, right? That it used to be, I would sell you code that you run on your machines. Right. Then it's like, <laughs> hey, I'll run my code for, for you, you, yes. you know, for a fee. Mm. Now I'm now, and if you want any customizations, use your code, you run it. Now you're able to say, hey, if you want to customize it, 
I'll run your code for you too right. under these constraints. Yeah, you're you're chipping off all this plumbing stuff and just allowing them to focus on what's important. Sure. The pendulum just keeps swinging, right? The pendulum continually swings one way or the other, and, and that's exactly what's happening. I think the period of the pendulum is getting shorter. Like, we're making little tweaks in this now. We're, I think, narrowing into a very interesting place where there's a certain level of customizations that will fit within these guidelines that you will happily run on their benefit in an isolated way. There's still a line out there somewhere. It's like, that's just too weird. You better run that yourself. Mm. Absolutely. You know? and, there, and there are companies that have their own development workflows. And one of the things that's really attractive about Extend is it's, it's actually, if you think about just like with Excel macros, is it's enabling that person that's not a developer. So you're not even having that debate about, oh, my dev team. It's like, this person could even be like a business analyst who learned some basic JavaScript to get something done. So it's like, but if you go into organizations that have a really well-established dev team, they may be pushing back. But even there, it's kind of like, who is the person that's doing the authoring? Often the place right. where Extend is going to fit. And, and one of the things I like is Alex Matthews, he's one of the founders of Factory 4, likes to talk about how, you know, we're kind of enabling things more at the edges. Mm -hmm. My first question would be, you know, how much damage can a business analyst with a little high school JavaScript do in Extend? Well, because it runs completely isolated, not that much. Well, he can only hurt himself, but that's fine. <laughs> he can hurt himself, but he's not going to hurt the product and he's not going to hurt other people's data. Sure. I mean, and, and to be fair, we're not saying the business analyst is the target, but we do have people that are not traditional developers who attach to this and say, hmm, I can do what I need to do. But certainly I would say like right. we're not... Like if you look at some of the other products that are out there that touch on some of this, like, you know, Zapier, for example, yep. you know, but they're actually focusing on non-technical people. That's not our focus. Yeah. Our focus is on technical okay. people and just making it easier for them to get things done. Whereas Zapier is more of a declarative kind of drag and drop experience, but that also has the limits that come along with that. But again, the audience that they're going after, if you give them code, they're going to probably not make any progress. So it's, it's, a, it's a different audience. Sure. You always have that balancing act between sophisticated enough to do what you want, but not so sophisticated that people can't understand it. Yep. And also, we all know this, that running servers is hard, right? Even you have yeah. like serverless, mm -hmm. there's still things you have to think about. It's not like magically everything is solved for you. This is a very controlled environment, which gives us some benefits in the sense that, you know, if you're a product and yeah. you're using Extend, you know the qualities of the platform and the guidelines sure. and the enforcement, which in a webhooks model as a platform, you don't really know that. You have to allow for kind of least common denominator and, and you have to put a lot of guardrails up because you don't know what that person's going to write on the other side. Whereas here you have less concern of that because the platform enforces a lot of that for you. Hmm. Yeah, it's really wild. Mm -hmm. And it's just interesting to think about the opportunity space in there where you make things simpler for more people and people get their own customizations for themselves rather than having to deal with this buffet of choices that often gets confusing. And mm -hmm. are you charging anything for being able to do that? Yes. I mean, Extend is a, is a paid product, but when you look at services, you have to think about, you know, what are you saving? What, what would those costs be if you weren't paying for that service. So think about, sure. you know, something like this, for example, you know, if you were going to implement something similar 
to extend. You're talking several engineers over, you know, probably a period of six months to a year. And then you're talking about ongoing maintenance. So those costs, you know, just think about those costs and what it costs to hire engineers and ongoing operational costs comparatively. And we are a fraction, a minute fraction of that. No, and and it's and it's such high value stuff too. It's such a simple yeah. way to solve that problem, and it just works. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is now? It must be that happy time again. Yeah, it's time to ask a rhetorical question. How would one describe the North Shore of Oahu just after a shark attack? Mm, I don't know. How surferless? Oh, jeez. That's funny. <laughs> <laughs> I don't care who you are. <laughs> oh, my uh, goodness. Not bad. Not bad. I'd give that a three and a half. All right. It's actually time to give away a $200 Amazon card to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. Compliments of Progress Telerik. But first, let me tell you about Conversational UI from Progress Telerik and Kendo UI. Conversational UI are chatbot framework agnostic user interface controls and components that enable .NET and JavaScript developers to create modern conversational chatbot experiences in their web, mobile, and desktop applications. The industry's first packaged set of user interface components built specifically for chatbots are available as part of the company's Telerik ASP.NET AJAX, ASP.NET MVC, ASP.NET Core, WindForms, WPF, Xamarin Products, and Kendo UI for jQuery, Angular, Vue, React, PHP, and JSP libraries. By implementing key UI design features such as calendars, date pickers, list views, and others that are included in the tool sets, developers will be able to improve chatbot conversation through visual elements that enhance the natural flow of conversation. For more information, visit Telerik.com slash conversational dash UI. Well, all right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner, Richard, is Tim Stratton. Yeah, this is Tim. Yeah. Golf clap for you. And Tim just won a $200 Amazon gift card. Compliments of Progress Telerik from our friends over there. And Tim just won a $200 Amazon gift card from Progress Telerik. And uh, Richard, you're doing a little tour with them, aren't you? I am. Uh, probably just a couple of weeks after this show comes out in the middle of, of July, 23, 24, 25. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be traveling with uh, Sarah Fats. Yeah. And I have uh, lined up guests. We're going to do sort of a mini Donna Rocks thing where I'm going to be doing some interviews. I have Jessica Engstrom. Wow, cool. Talking a little web UX. Yeah. Uh, Laurent Bignon. I strongly yeah, suspect yeah. we're going to be talking a little MVVM with him. And our friend Christian Wire. That's awesome. Who has strong opinions about Blazor. So I'm looking forward to seeing what he has to say about that. Yeah, and he lives in a town with a pub that brews their own beer. So. <laughs> it's the most German thing you've ever seen. Although, yeah, yeah. I'm going to be hanging with him in Munich. What could go wrong with that? Well, I wish I could be with you, but I have a little thing called Keto Fest over here on yeah. the East Coast that's happening that same weekend. So You filled that thing up. The Kickstarter went really well. Kickstarter went great, and we're selling tickets after. And as of this recording, which is on the 2nd of July, it's about less than 20 days away. There you go. You freaking out? Not yet. Oh, you just hasn't hit you yet. Okay. You know? It just hasn't hit me yet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, thanks to our friends over at Progress Telerik for helping us with the fan club. If you'd like to be a member of the fan club, just go to .netrocks.com, click on the Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join up. We have thousands of members all over the world, and every show we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree. 
to one lucky member of said fan club, but you do have to sign up to win. And uh, we also like to ask our guest, Glenn, of course, you know this drill. If you've got $5,000 and you're going shopping, what are you going to buy? Yes, so I I thought about this one. So I have been very deep into virtual reality as my side thing. I didn't mention that in my bio, but I, I am a VR geek and I had to buy the Oculus rift when it first came out and i just Mm. bought the oculus go oh yeah the little one which is actually way better than i you know it's not as rich of an experience of the oculus rift but for what you get it's pretty amazing and everybody was like oh i can do that with my phone but the whole beauty of it is like you don't need a phone like the fact that it's fully encapsulated Mm. and you know you just plug it in and it works and it's it's quite good and it's inexpensive compared to the regular oculus too 200 bucks. I spent, yeah. like, I, you know, because I couldn't wait and I had to buy like a computer and everything. I mean, I spent like $2,600 to sure. get my Oculus Rift and a new Windows 10 gaming, you know, I had to get like a gaming machine because the requirements for the for the Rift. Now, again, it's not exactly the same experience. The level of immersion is not the same. Anyway, they're coming out with a new Oculus Rift that is completely wireless so it's kind of going in the direction of like Go, but it is a full-on Rift. Still tethered to a computer, just wireless? I believe that's what it is. I believe yeah. it's wireless. I don't know if it has a computer built in and if it's doing like what the HoloLens is. If it is, it's probably going to be a lot more money. I mean, the problem when, when you do that is you get into these crazy constraints. It's just so expensive to get computer equipment that compact. Exactly. If, where if you can have the wireless experience, but still have all that horsepower behind you, so much the better. Exactly. So the code name for this thing is Santa Cruz. Okay. I don't know how expensive it's going to be, but I imagine when it first comes out, it's going to be pretty pricey because of what it is. So I would probably say I would get that and get a HoloLens because, hey, if I'm I'm going with 5,000, I just put it all into my VR investment. And if I have any money left over, I'll get like one of those like chairs that has the mics. You know, I've seen they have like these racing chairs that are, you know, actually have hydraulics. I, I recently went to the new renovated museum at at the microsoft campus i don't know if you've Mm -hmm. been there but they completely renovated it now and uh, they have one of these hydraulic seats for car racing (laughs) so i think between the three of those i probably get pretty close to five thousand. you can blow five grand on a good motion chair by itself like good chairs are expensive is it like ready player one kind of chair yeah that's right (laughs) yeah you're sort of haptic feedback immersion effect chairs yeah you can burn a lot of cash in that Although, I mean, mm. the Omnitread is supposed to be the thing you use with your VR glasses, where you're basically standing up in a ring. I haven't heard too much about that from actual users, though. Is that the one that lets you walk, like, in any direction? Is that, like, really, like, the Ready Player One thing? Yeah, that's right, mm. the Omnitread. And what does that thing cost? Those are only about 1500 bucks. Wow. For five grand, you could pretty much build out that immersive rig. But yeah, wouldn't the, hmm. the problem is that the chairs they just get so complicated with all the hydraulics and things that boom, you, the money's gone. Well, let's swap it for that for what you just described. That sounds better. That sounds better for my <laughs> virtual immer- immersion experience. <laughs> well, we hope we give some people some ideas if they uh, actually do win. Wouldn't you love to build out an R- a VR rig for someone if they win in December? That would be that would so be so neat. awesome. That would be really yeah. cool. Yeah, because that's the kind of stuff you can't spend money on. Yeah, of your of your own pocket because the spousal acceptance factor is pretty, you know. But if you win it, that's a different story. Yep. Funny, I just had this conversation with a, a marketing group, and they were saying, "Well, we want to give away gift cards." It's like you're better to give away an Xbox. I'm like, why? I says, 
people will take a $300 Xbox over a $500 gift card. Like, why? It's because Mm. I can't spend $500 on an Xbox and have my wife not kill me. But if I come (laughs) home with an Xbox because I want it, well, sorry, sweetie, I want it. Yeah. Glenn, answer this question. What is the game or what is the experience in Oculus Rift that you love? Like, what is like the most compelling experience? One of the most compelling ones for me is the climb, you know, which is like a rock climbing game. So, it's all about creating that fear of falling, which they, they those things are so good at. It is so good that it's, well, I mean, it's like, it's really like rock climbing only from the hands, not using the feet. But the quality mm. of it is so good and it is like, I know that I'm in VR, but it's literally like scary. Like, I can stand wow. in my, standing in my office and I'm like, what if this actually became real? Like, I'm... A thousand feet, two thousand feet up, hanging by one at one hand. Hanging by your hand, I love it. It's pretty impressive. <laughs> I think it's one of my favorite. There's another one which is like a mystery game, and you're like in it, and you're like solving a mystery, and you know, like a murder mystery, and you see it from different angles, walking through the house. I, I've been really impressed with it. The only thing I don't like about it, there's, and this is where the go really hits on this. There's still this setup. The thing that's so impressive with the Go is the fact that you just put the helmet on and go. Whereas with Oculus, right. you know, you got to turn on your computer, launch the Oculus software. You might have to recalibrate because of the sensors. And that's where Santa Cruz is nice because Santa Cruz will have internal sensors. So there's no external, like I have these external sensors in my office and most people that have Oculuses do. But uh, yeah, it's that ability to just put it on and go which is really compelling. But the other one I really like that I recently got into is the Star Trek game. There's like this Star Trek Oculus game where you're like sitting at any of the stations and it's, it's really impressive. That's cool. And does that work with the the little Oculus as well as the big one? Not the Star Trek one. And the climb doesn't either. The climb is not available Mm. on Go either. The problem with Go for the climb is the climb really needs multiple controllers. Like the thing that really makes the climb is that you can use both controllers for both hands. The Go doesn't have that yet. They do have, I think, the ability to link the Xbox controller to the Go. I suspect that's point in time. I mean, it doesn't make sense. Like, if I'm already an Oculus owner, why wouldn't I be able to use Oculus Touch, which are the hand controllers? But until they do, and I don't know, the climb might be too heavy. It's a pretty big game, you know, by big by today's standards, which means big. You know, we're talking about like Mm. hundreds of gigs. So that might be a problem. You know, you don't have unlimited storage when you use the Go. I think mine has 32 gigs, so that limits you as well. Hey, can we talk a little bit about the API of Extend? Did sure. you have a hand in that? And what, yeah. what, what can we look forward to there? Yeah, so, well, and, and this is also relevant in terms of the fact that this is .NET Rocks, and .NET developers might be like, oh, well, I'm not a JavaScript developer. Well, right. the whole thing about Extend is it's a service. So you can totally have like an ASP.NET core application and the way that it interacts with extend there's a ui widget which is a react component which you can just throw into your ui wherever you want to enable your customers to write those uh, business rules etc and the back end mm-hmm. it's just making an api call so we don't actually have a dotnet NuGet package yet for doing that for you but it is literally just a single line to make an API call like with HP client to be able to invoke extend. So it has a full API. It is all an API at the end of the day in terms of your interaction with it. So yeah, Yeah. so we have an API for execution. We have an API for management. We support all different kinds of authentication models. 
What's interesting in this world is you get into different auth models because you have authentication at the point where an extension gets invoked. Like you want to basically be Mm -hmm. able to control who can call it. And then you have Mm -hmm. the management side of who can actually create them and modify them. And so we're really flexible on the invocation side because of the fact that we have this middleware pipeline, which is pretty unique. So imagine like with HTTP requests, you know, in .NET, you have middleware or in the node world, you have like connect middleware. We have the moral equivalent of that within extend. And that allows you to do any kind of cross-cutting things like authentication, logging, et cetera. So you can really have whatever kind of authentication you want in terms of the invocation side. And then where, you know, we have an OAuth JWT based mechanism for the management side. Very cool. So tell me about some of your customers and what they've done with it. Sure. So and one thing that's been really interesting, we've seen a lot of traction and interest around IoT. And that was surprising to us, but it makes sense now that I understand it. And the reason is, so if we look at Aviva, which is now formerly Schneider Electric, and the product is called Wonderware Online, and I'll share the blog posts on it. You can search for it and find it online. Okay. They're dealing with a huge number of devices that are sending data, and they have an IoT operational analytics platform that can basically look at IoT data. They deal a lot with things like farming equipment and really industrial level things, and they're running analytics to determine all kinds of interesting things like, are those devices working properly, et cetera. And so the number of possible devices out there is unlimited, and the number of formats Mm -hmm. is unlimited because there's no one canonical format that all of these different devices speak. So where they're basically using Extend for is to make it so that they can tailor their product to accept any kind of format of data. You know, that could be sent over the wire, essentially. Mm. So rather than baking that into the product and a fixed way of doing that, now when a customer comes, so in their world, they actually have system integrators that do a lot of their big installations. And so this enables the SIs, uh, as long as they're technical enough, to basically say, oh, we have all these different devices that we're receiving data from. We're going to handle transforming that data into the format that Wonderware Online understands. The other thing they do in the process of doing that, and this is where it's been really interesting seeing other value that Extend could provide, is they have the ability to do data enrichment. So interestingly enough, their product uses Azure Functions and Azure, and it runs primarily in Azure, but they're using Extend for their extensibility for customers and system integrators. And so one of their uh, partners that they work with is this company called Waterforce. And they were highlighted at one of the recent build events. And they found a way to calculate, I think it was temperature for this agricultural equipment, such that it didn't need you to have these expensive, like, you know, thermometers or or meters that could determine the temperature. They were able to do it through an algorithm. And they utilizing Extend to do the enrichment at the point where the data comes in to apply that algorithm. So that's creating an additional value add where they can now, you know, offer these enriched capabilities that happen because of the fact that they have this platform where all their data goes through where these kind of customizations and enrichments can be applied. I don't know if that makes sense. No, absolutely. And it's it's just interesting to think about how you mix these different technologies together, like throw a little ML in there as well, the machine learning capabilities with that composite data, and you get some sort of real-time effects to say, we know exactly the state of that machine. 
with simpler sensors, but more streams of data so that we just we have a better insight into what's going on. Exactly. Another use case I would say is, so this gets closer to kind of the CRM, but we have a company, Sasquatch, who's one of our customers. And that's S-A-A-S, Sasquatch. <laughs> yes. They used to be referral cool. Sasquatch. Now they're just Sasquatch. Like their roots are all about referral campaigns. And so, you know, what happens is, especially when you're trying to be disruptive going to a market where there's maybe these big existing players, you want to differentiate. And so what a lot of the customers are using Extend or looking at is it enables them to differentiate by offering capabilities that the big guys can't offer or that would take them a lot of time to develop. So Sasquatch uses us so that they can have very tailored campaigns, really custom logic that tailors to the needs of each of their individual organizations that buy their product. So that's another nice. use case. So that's not really an IoT use case. That's more about business rules, you know, applying business rules sure. or filtering or, or different conditions that will be applied. Another really interesting one that will be closer to developers, and I mentioned to you in the email about how I've been doing a bunch of stuff around GraphQL, mm-hmm. is Meteor. So you've probably heard of Meteor. They've been around a long sure. time. And they've now moved big time into the GraphQL space with their Apollo framework. And so they have this online sandbox where you can easily build a GraphQL endpoint. And they're using us to enable that experience. That product is called Launchpad. So if you go to launchpad.graphql.com, I believe it is, you'll basically get this online editor. Now, this is a little bit different than the traditional kind of extend customer in the sense that they are completely targeting a developer. Non-developers are not writing GraphQL endpoints. But what they're using us for is still that ability to offer their own in-product authoring and very quick, rapid iteration experience for developing these GraphQL endpoints. So Hmm. yeah, so that just gives you three different use cases that are very different. And really fast. I do have another show coming up with GraphQL, but I'm asking this question over and over again because we did a show of GraphQL a year ago, and we didn't really get into the sort of O data versus GraphQL comparisons. What do you say when that comes up, Glenn? So, yeah, I gave a talk on that, actually. Mm -hmm. I spoke at, uh, you know, Chander Dahl. I spoke at MVP Mix, and I delivered a talk on GraphQL. And as a matter of fact, just shameless plug, I actually have on LinkedIn Learning a course on developing GraphQL solutions with .NET. So right. there, there actually is an ecosystem around it. The biggest difference, I think, is that GraphQL is completely abstracted from any kind of data store. That's one big difference. Whereas OData, you right. could do that, but it had its roots. And those roots are still, you know, even though it's gotten a lot better, it you know, really kind of led you toward using this like OData stack end-to-end, whereas GraphQL is a lot more abstract than that. It's, it's much more of like, here's a protocol that, you know, is not really opinionated. The thing I think that is really nice about GraphQL is the expressiveness of the queries. Also, like, you know, OData has kind of the query string model and GraphQL really pushed on this idea of an expressive way to pull graphs of data. A lot of people get confused that GraphQL is about a graph database. It's definitely not. It's more just thinking of graph as a term of like, I've got a data source A and data source A has a child of B Mm. and B has a child of C. So I think it has that richness, that expressiveness and richness is, is a difference. The other thing I would say is that because of the fact that it doesn't imply what the server looks like, you have a lot more control. 
GraphQL is a much more controlled universe. The mm -hmm. server actually returns kind of the universe of queries that are possible. And that was something where there was a lot of, I know historically, you know, OData kind of led you more toward like, you've got a database, open it up to an API. Right. Which is totally its origin. That's what it was about. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Back when it was Astoria. So yeah. GraphQL formed to solve a very different problem, which was really trying to cut down the number of queries that Facebook's mobile app was having to make to pull things from the activity feed. So they, it fell out of a mm -hmm. very real world use case of like, how do we cut down these hundred queries to just be one so we can efficiently load right. up our UI? The other thing I would say that's been different is the fact, and this I think GraphQL got right, is very early it opened up to the community and created a huge ecosystem. I mean, there's just a huge ecosystem of client and server, you know, implementations around GraphQL and the community is driving that. As opposed to like when OData was very much being driven by Microsoft. For example, look at Meteor as an example. Meteor has become one of the key players around GraphQL and they've created the Apollo server and the Apollo client. That was possible because very early on, Facebook opened up kind of the GraphQL spec and the community took it. So I think that's another big part of it is the fact that kind of like the way Node tapped in with the NPM world, GraphQL really mm -hmm. has embraced the community early to take it forward and evolve it. Yeah, no, I appreciate, and I appreciate that insight that origin matters, intent matters for a lot of this stuff. Do you see what it's good at? Yes, I do think like on, on if you squint, you can say they're similar, but the devil's always in the details and the details definitely make the difference. But sure. having written GraphQL queries and OData queries, I can say that the expressiveness of the query language and that it, it's just so simple to just, it's like a variant of JSON of writing right. your mm -hmm. query and you get to, you know, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it makes a huge difference actually. And you really see that if you try graphical, which is the interactive query tool for querying GraphQL endpoints. And like, if you go to GitHub, which many people here use GitHub, GitHub has a GraphQL API and you can go right into that GraphQL browser and start issuing GraphQL queries. And by the way, the reason this became a thing for us is because GraphQL is so new that it has come about at a time when people started to say, well, why do I need a server to do that? These are just like API calls. Why can't I just have serverless right. infrastructure service my GraphQL queries? So there's actually a big demand around implementing GraphQL endpoints using serverless technology. Mm -hmm. And that is kind of what Extend tapped into. The difference being that, hey, we've got a GraphQL product and Extend will provide the ability for us to deliver these GraphQL endpoints in a really lightweight, simple manner. So getting back to Extend a little bit, of course, we want to know how much is it and what are the pricing options? I know you can get started for free and you've got a great Slack community and a nice blog and stuff like that. But tell us what the pricing options are. Yeah. So, I mean, Extend has, we have various pricing levels. As you mentioned, we have a developer account, which is completely free. We also have a new starter account. So what we've seen is we've seen a lot of startups actually and small companies that looked at Extend and they're like, man, we love this thing, but it's too expensive. I mean, our, our premium product is an enterprise product designed for really large scale. So it's affordable relative to many other products, but you know, it's, and it depends on the, on the deal size, but it's certainly not something that's like 50 bucks a month. Our starter plan, right. however, is, and it's designed to get yeah. startups going really, really quickly or companies that want to evaluate us. And so, you know, it's just 50 bucks a month. So 
that's kind of where cool. things start at, and then our enterprise product goes up significantly from there. But at that point, they've probably got a fairly significant value proposition too. Like you've done sure. this; it's efficient way to do it. It's low cost to operate, and so now you're you're like, oh, you know, what it, what are you consuming on the back end? What is it costing? A big part of our value proposition, you know, people, if you look at us from a compute cycles perspective, like mm -hmm. how much am I paying per request, that's actually not how our model works. And it's not really where we want to be because right. really what Extend is about is value. So our pricing model, actually, just to give you, it has two components. There's a platform fee, which is just to kind of use the platform. And then we right. have on top of it, we have a cost model that associates with your business. So generally... Think of it as organizations, like the number of organizations that are using the product. Each organization is going to be running its own customizations that run like in isolation. Think about what I mean by organizations is like you're a SaaS product and you've got 10 customers that are using Extend. Each one is going to have their own customizations that have to run in isolation. So that's how it works. You basically pay for each of those, we'll call them tenants, even though they're not exactly tenants for lack of a yeah. better word. The beauty of that is if you buy the product and your adoption is low, you're not paying a ton of money just based sure. on the fact that they're doing large number of requests, for example, but you're not actually getting paid for that. So it really attaches to your business model. So if you have 100 customers using it and you're running you know, 100 tenants, you're going to pay for 100 tenants. The standard enterprise purchase includes 10 tenants and goes up from there. And from our customers that have been using us for a while, they've really liked that model because they felt that one, you know, Extend is such a new idea and it's going to take time. The common pattern of how Extend rolls out is companies build and they'll maybe roll it out to a couple of customers, try it out, you know, see how it's working and refine it. And then at some point mm -hmm. they'll open the floodgates. But until that time that they open the floodgates, because of our pricing model, they're not paying a ton of money because they're only paying for those tenants that they're using. Nice. Yeah. Glenn, this sounds really cool, and I hope you get some significant traffic from this show. And uh, it's always good to talk to you, my friend. Yeah, likewise. And for people that are interested, by the way, you can find out more about Extend by going to goextend.io. And we also have a developer's page which talks about a lot of the tech under the hood and the API, and that's at goextend.io slash developers. Cool. Awesome. Thanks again, Glenn, and we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a